saw a, a video not too long ago. It was a video of some kids. It was an interview asking the kids what they wanted to do when they grew up. And it wasn't totally surprising, the responses that they gave. You know, one after another, it's like, oh, I want to play for the Red Sox. I want to play for the Patriots. I want to play for the Celtics. I want to be a millionaire. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be famous. All that kind of stuff. And uh, as I was watching the video, I was thinking, I thought a couple things. One, if all these kids get their wish, you know, the Celtics are really going to have to expand their roster because <laughs> it, was, it was a huge group. But the other thing I, I, w I was thinking was, you know, all of their dreams, everything that they expressed had to do with, with fame and fortune. Um, and before we pass judgment on those kids, uh, if we're honest, we, we desire the same stuff. We've just learned to express it differently. We, we've learned to not be so, so bold about how we tell others. Maybe in part, is, part of that's because we have realized at this point in our life that, that the Celtics are not calling. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to happen there. Um, but also, it's because we've, we've just learned to, to talk in ways that are more socially acceptable. We don't say, I want to be rich and famous. We say, I want to be secure. We say, I want to be established. We say, I don't want a job, I want a career. We say those kind of things. Our desires are the same, but the words we use are a little bit different. I think that stuff is so deeply ingrained inside of us that it's almost impossible for us to escape. This idea of success, this idea of onward and upward, it's such a part of our society, it's such a part of who we are. We, spill, we spend our youth working hard to get these things. We, we spend our, our middle years filled with anxiety in the pursuit of it. And then we, we have midlife crises. We have late life crises when we realize that we, we may not get all the things that we dreamed of. And I'm sure every single one of you, if we stood up one by one, we'd all say we know that we can't take it with us, right? That, that we, we can't take fame and fortune with us when we die. And yet, we spend so much of our life looking for it. Well, John's message here speaks to that desire. This gospel speaks to our desire. It's, and it tells us that, that things we want uh, are actually available. We're just looking in the wrong places. What we desire, that greatness can be found, but we're never going to find it on our own. So today I want us to look at this passage and hear what Jesus is trying to say to us. Um, I want us to hear a few things. First, I want us to see why Jesus tells us that we are always fixed on things that perish. So why are we fixed on the things that perish? And then secondly, I, I want us to look at what the alternative is. What alternative does Jesus offer? And then finally, how do we get it? So why are we fixed on the things that perish? What's the alternative and how do we get it? To talk about how we get fixated, first we need to set up the scene. Uh, we're, we're preaching mostly through the whole book of John this, this semester, but we're skipping a, a passage here and there. And here's what's happened since John chapter 5. Jesus is, is doing some amazing things. People are, are watching him teach. They're watching him perform these miraculous signs, especially, John tells us, they've seen him heal people. And so as he's doing these signs, he starts to gather a following, as you might imagine anybody would. And the following gets bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually he has 5,000 people who have gathered around him to see what he's going to do and, and hear what he's going to say. 
And this leads to one of the most uh, famous miracles in the Gospels. In fact, the only miracle that you can find in all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus tells his disciples, well, we have all these people, you need to feed them. And they look around and they say, well, we don't have food for 5,000 people. And then Jesus, maybe you know what he does. He takes five loaves and he takes two fish and he multiplies that miraculously to feed all of these people. And it says at the end, his disciples were able to gather up 12 basketful, baskets full of leftovers. It's a pretty amazing thing. And that's usually where we stop thinking about that story. But today's account is from right after that. Uh, it's what happened that evening. Well, the people, they hung around. They said, that was pretty cool. <laughs> Let, let's wait and see what he does tomorrow. And they, they camped out under the stars. They had a nice night, probably. They woke up in the morning, and they're like, well, what's Jesus going to say today? Hey, hey, where's Jesus? It tells us that in the middle of the night, Jesus crossed over the sea. And so they start trying to figure out where he is, and, and they also cross over the sea. And they finally catch back up with Jesus, and that's where our passage starts. If you've got your Bibles, you should open them up and turn there. We're in John chapter 6. And they come to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, that seems like a fair question. But as we have seen over and over in this book, uh, Jesus doesn't answer the question they ask. He sees through the question they're asking, and he addresses what's going on in their hearts. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He says, you're not really coming to me uh, for the signs. You're coming to me because I, I filled your stomach. Your concern is, is not with what I have to say or what I came to do. But you're here to find out what you can get from me. Uh, my parents occasionally come up to visit. They live down south. And almost every time they come, they bring with them a nice load of presents for our mini children. <laughs> and uh, the last, one of the recent times when my mother came, in addition to that, she also did one thing that we never do, which is listen to their constant plea for more things. Like, give me more. I want this. I want this. And so one day they sat down on the sofa, and my mother pulled out an iPad, and she said, here, kids, let's, let's look on Amazon, and you guys can each pick out one thing. <laughs> well, when they came back over Christmas, what was the very first thing that happened? My mom, just getting right in the door, sits down on the couch, and the kids you know, snuggle up next to her, and they say, hey, Mom Suze, you want to look at Amazon? <laughs> and she realized in that moment what she had done. Right? The kids were not coming to her because she was their grandmother that they loved. They were coming to her for what they could get. And let's be honest, that is how many of us approach religion. We come to it for what we can get out of it. We see in our life this problem, and we think, well, maybe this is the place where I can have that problem solved. Maybe we are struggling with anxiety, or maybe we have an unforeseen health problem. Maybe one of our relationships goes bad and we start feeling the guilt. Whatever it is, a lot of times we come to this point of crisis and we start to think, 
well, maybe what I need in my life is some religion. You know, maybe, maybe Jesus can give me the peace I need. And you know what? The truth is, Jesus can. He can give you the peace that you're searching for. But the point that Jesus wants to make to us here, the point that he wanted to make to this group of people who followed him across the sea, was he wanted to tell them that his aim was not first and foremost to make your life here comfortable. Now the Bible, it's true, it makes all sorts of promises about God's ability to provide for his people. In Matthew, you'll see things like the promise that God knows every hair on your head or where it says that he clothes the flowers of the field in splendor. So, of course, he's going to care for you. But have you ever thought, have you ever asked yourself, why are these promises here? Well, the promises are there because God knows that there are a lot of times in the life of a Christian where we need that reminder There are a lot of times in the life of faith where we're concerned about whether we're going to make it or not. There's going to be a struggle in our following following Jesus. The prosperity gospel. Have you guys heard of this this term before? It's it's the term for a certain kind of teaching, which I think is is the worst expression. Uh, It's it's kind of the the opposite of what Jesus is trying to tell his, his followers here. Um, it's the term for a certain group of pastors, a certain group of churches who teach that God blesses people. He blesses faithful people with wealth and happiness. And he does it proportionally. You know, you're proportionally blessed by how faithful and obedient you are. And that teaching is, at its best, deceptive and totally wrong. But at its worst, that teaching is flat out, full on spiritual abuse. Because what it says is it, it looks at people who are poor, it looks at people who are needy, it looks at people who are sick, it looks at people whose lives are falling apart, and it says, the reason why you're suffering is because you haven't done enough. The reason why you're suffering is because you have not had enough faith. It's because, it's because you deserve it. The reason why you don't drive a Bentley like the pastor <laughs> is because you haven't put in enough effort to get the returns. And I've seen stories of people who have taken this teaching and and done crazy things, you know, giving 90, 100 percent of their income to the church with the promise that Jesus is going to pay them back in dividends. Now, you might hear that and you're like, well, that's ridiculous. I'm never going to fall for something like that. But I'm kind of sympathetic to it. I understand how someone can be roped in to that teaching, because who honestly, who prefers poverty to riches? Who would not prefer a full stomach over an empty stomach? Who wouldn't desire stability over instability? Now, don't get me wrong. It's not even even that those things are wrong. There's going to be a lot of opportunities in your life, probably, to to become more comfortable. There might be some opportunities to to find better paying jobs or, or to move into a better apartment. And it's not inherently wrong if you do that. But what Jesus is saying here is that if your life's aim is comfort, if your life's aim is the path of least resistance, if your picture of prosperity is a a mansion in Brookline next to Tom and Giselle, if that's what you want, your vision of prosperity 
is too small. He says that's all the stuff that perishes. He says to these people in the crowd, that bread I gave you yesterday is already gone. You're hungry again. You already want more. You're working so hard for this bread that perishes because you want the wrong kind of prosperity. Your vision of the kind of prosperity I'm bringing is too small. I didn't just come to make your life more comfortable. He says, I have come to restore everything in this earth that's broken. I have come not just to make you rich, but I have come to eradicate poverty and suffering and sickness and death. And the way I'm going to do that is by taking away the sins of the world. He says, my prosperity is bigger than your full stomach. In other words, it's what we've been saying the last few weeks. This life is, it's just a shadow. It's just a breath. It's just a prologue to the eternity that Christ came to bring. And we forget that. We forget that prosperity here perishes. And I think it shows in the way we live. When we forget that the prosperity here perishes, we do this exact same kind of thing. We start to live first and foremost in the pursuit of our own comfort. You know, we take the jobs that pay the most money instead of the jobs that might actually use our gifts. We pick up and move our families across the world for our careers without ever asking the question, where does God want me to be? And I mean, even the simple things. What do we, how do we treat our money? Now, I think a lot of us, we, we, we don't tithe like we should because we, we want the full cable package. You know? or, or we think that if we did, we weren't going to make it. Or maybe if we do tithe, tithe we just give enough to kind of calm our guilt. But the concept of actually giving sacrificially seems insane. Jesus tells us the reason why that is, the reason why our our money has such control over us is because we pursue the bread that cannot sustain us. We pursue that bread because we don't know what it really means to be satisfied. We don't understand that the bread that we need is not the bread that will give us a full belly here on earth, But it's the bread that leads to eternal life. Okay. That's the other thing. That's the alternative. This bread that leads to eternal life. We desire the things that perish because because we don't realize this is the bread we need. So what is the bread we need? What's it like? Jesus calls it the bread of life. He calls it the bread of heaven. And while he's talking to these people, it's a concept they, they cannot understand. At first, they start to argue with him a little bit. They say to Jesus, if you're really so great, then prove it. What are you going to do to prove how that you are who you say you are? Moses did great things. Moses gave manna every single day. You know, subtext, you've given us bread once. Moses gave us bread every single day. Well, Jesus 
you know, that's referring to the story of the Exodus. I, I hope maybe some of you are familiar with it. But while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, the Exodus tells us that every day there was this miraculous bread that appeared for them. Now, as soon as they say that, Jesus comes back at them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, Moses never gave you a thing. Back then and now, God is the one who gives bread from heaven and gives life to the world. And when he says that, they respond again. They don't understand. They say, well, give us that bread. Sure, give us this bread always. And that response, if you uh, were here a couple weeks ago, we told the story of the woman at the well. It's the same deal. He offers the woman living water, and she says, oh, well, give me that water so I won't be thirsty and have to come here and draw water. These people, they say, oh, that bread, that sounds good. Yeah, okay, if, that, if that's what you're going to give, give me an order of that. Yeah, I'd like that. Give me some of that bread. But what they don't realize is the hunger he's talking about is not a physical hunger. And the, the bread he's talking about is not uh, physical bread. And so here he goes. He makes the attempt. He tries to make it as clear as possible. He looks at these people and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, let's just stop here for a second. If you have been in the church, maybe you've grown up in the church, perhaps you hear some of these verses and they, they're not really registering to you. Now, if you're a visitor here today, or if you haven't ever read this before, then you, you know this is some strange-sounding stuff. And this happens to me occasionally as a pastor. I'll get ready for the week and start studying for whatever I'm going to be preaching on that Sunday. And I come across a passage like this that I've basically got memorized. I've heard it so many times. And I look at it, and I, and I say, what does this mean? You know, what, what is he talking about? I am the bread of life. Eat me. What does that mean? So let's just take a step back. Let's, let's step further back, even out of this chapter, and think about the book of John. Every week I've mentioned to you that this gospel has a theme. And I'm thankful John lays it out very clearly for us. He says, here's why this book exists. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing, you may have life in his name. This is the major theme, life, the theme of this book, finding life in Jesus. And here Jesus says, the bread from heaven brings life to the world. He says, I am the bread. I came to bring life. Okay, so what is the implication of that? Well, one thing, 
you think about it, it means that without that bread, we don't have life. Without that bread, we are essentially dead. Now, obviously, Jesus is not talking to zombies here. He's talking to a lot of people who are alive. They're physically alive. They're living. But he's talking about another kind of living. He's talking about maybe the best way to think about it would be the idea of just merely existing versus really living. About merely existing versus really living. And while the analogies that Jesus uses kind of sound strange to our ears, the idea isn't really that foreign. I think every single person on earth has to deal with the fact that sometimes it doesn't feel like we're really living. That sometimes it feels like we're just going through the motions. That life is, is empty. That it's hollow. That there's no substance to it. And this world, you know, it's not just Jesus who's telling us how to really live. This world is full of philosophies about how you can really live. When I was thinking through this during the week, the first thing that popped into my mind was the Jungle Book. Have you guys watched that lately? The, the old Disney cartoon version. Um, there's a part in the middle where Baloo the bear sings the Bear Necessities song. You know, and he's, he's singing his, his life philosophy to Mowgli. He's telling him that your problem is you're, you're working too hard, you're concerned about too many things. What you need to do is just focus on the, the simple things. Focus on the bare necessities of life. And you know, he, he dances, there's a big trumpet solo in the middle, and they're like juggling fruit and stuff, and he's scratching his back on the trees. And then there's this point where he sinks down the side of the rock and lands into this river. Do you remember this? And kind of like goes under and then pops back up, and he says, man... This is really living. There's all kinds of philosophies in the world that tell you this is really living. Do this. Think this way. Meditate like this. Be noble. Be a good person. Become a respectful member of, of your society. Here's the things you need to try. Here's the things you need to do. Here's the way you need to think to be really living. But Jesus says... He puts it really bluntly. The only way to really live is if God himself comes down and gives you life. That's the message. There is a spiritual hunger inside each and every one of us that we can feel. It's inescapable. And Jesus says, you need to stop searching for a fix. You need to stop searching for the bread that perishes. There is only one solution, and it's him. Everything else, every other philosophy, every other plan, every other worldview is, is bread that perishes. But there is an alternative, and Jesus says, it's me, Jesus. The bread of life, eat of this bread. So how do we do that? How do we eat the bread of life? How do we get the bread of life? That's a fair question. And the crowd asks it, asks it pretty fast. Verse 52, it says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? The metaphors, they're abstract, they're confusing, they're strange. 
How can Jesus be the bread that gives life? How can Jesus be this bread that gives us life? Part of the answer is obvious if you think about it. For us to eat Jesus and live, he's going to have to die. For us to eat Jesus and live, Jesus is going to have to die. But why? Why do we need to, to eat Jesus? Why do we need to eat this bread of life in the first place? Well, that's the story of Scripture. That's the message that John is going to be trying to get across to us all the, uh, all the way up until June while we're preaching on this. He's telling us that the reason why our lives feel disconnected, the reason why we don't feel like we're really living is because we have been separated from God. We have been separated from the source of all life. Really living, real life is only a life that is connected to God and in relationship to God and deriving our lives from God. But our sin has prevented that from happening. Sin separates us from God. And as a consequence, as a result of our sin, we're all dead. We're spiritually dead and soon we're going to be physically dead. And there's nothing we can do. That's, that's our state. That's what scripture tells us. There's nothing we can do to reconnect ourselves to God. There's no way that we can reach up and grab a hold of God. We don't even look in the right places for God. But the gospel message is, in the person of Jesus, God came down and reached us. He is the bread that comes down from heaven. And on the cross, he took the penalty that we had earned. He was disconnected from God. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And he really died so that we could come to him and really live. So how can Jesus be the bread that brings life? Well, first, he has to die. But that's not all. Secondly, we have to eat. For Jesus to be the bread that brings us life, we have to eat the bread. So, you know, to help me try to explain these stories, a lot of times I'll tell them to my children. And I was sharing this with, with Ruby the other night. And when I got to this point, she, she, she got under the covers. <laughs> She's like, how can we eat Jesus? <laughs> she was terrified by me saying that. How can we eat Jesus? Well, again, the hunger that Jesus is talking about is not a physical hunger, it's a spiritual one. And the act of eating is not a, a physical act, it is a spiritual act. He's saying that spiritually, we need to eat him. Now, in our text, right after Jesus tells these people, don't labor for the bread that perishes. They come back and they say, okay, okay, we won't labor for the bread that perishes, but tell us, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He says, the only way you can get life is if you receive it. There's no amount of work that you can do. The only thing you can do is place your faith in what he has done on the cross and receive it as your own. 
The only way that you can find life is by acknowledging that in you there is no life. That you can't do it. That you can't work for it. That you can't earn it. That you can't meditate until you achieve it. You can't find inner peace. You can only admit it. The only thing you can do is admit that your sin has left you dead. You have to believe that he is the son of life, son of God. And you have to receive his life in exchange for yours. So how can Jesus be the bread that gives us life? Well, he has to die. We have to eat. But finally, the very last thing I want to say is it says we also abide in him. At the end of this passage, verse 56, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. I didn't want to just end with that last part because there's, there's a really important point here. When Christ becomes the source of our life, it's not just a one-time deal. It's not just some prayer that we pray. It's not just a moment where we say, well, now I've got eternal life coming to me. I'm going to put my faith in the bank and I'm just going to wait for it. I'm going to live my life however I please after this. John's trying to tell us this and he's going to keep telling us this. Eternal life starts now. The eternal life that Jesus came to bring you begins at the moment when you eat. Our life abides in him. The gospel is, is, is bigger than the message, when you come to Jesus, God forgets all the bad things you did. The gospel is, when you come to Jesus, God unites you to Christ. When you come to Jesus, your life is hidden with Christ. It's a part of Christ. You and him are viewed the same. And as that happens, as that life is lived out, we become more and more like him. As that life is lived out, his version of success, his version of prosperity starts to become our version of success and our version of prosperity. And so I don't want you to miss this. When Jesus bids us to, to come and eat and live, He's also calling us to come and die. To die to our old self. To die to our old comfort seeking. You guys remember the song Wonderful Cross? I think it's maybe the newer version where the chorus says, He bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. When you start to feed on Jesus, this is what happens. His spirit starts to transform you. It starts to change you. You start to realize that, that the Christian version of prosperity, the Christian version of the prosperity gospel, is not that we prosper, but it's that everyone else does. When you find your life resting in Christ, the one who gave up his life for you, then that enables you to give up your life for others. It enables us to stop asking questions like, what's going to make me happiest? What's going to make me most comfortable? What's going to make my life the easiest? And instead ask, 
What do I need to do to bring this message to others? What do I need to do to see the kingdom come here on earth? And you know, when we're really living that way, when we start to approach the world that way, it might cost you. It might start to cost us things. It might cost you some comfort. It might cost you some of your money. It might even cost you your life. But the good news is that this life that perishes is not all there is. Jesus tells us here, whoever eats the bread of life, though he die, yet shall he live. 